Okay, a couple of announcements, actually four, but I can't count. This month's men's prayer breakfast will take place on Saturday, November the 21st at 7.30 a.m. So we all be here, and we're going to have biscuits and gravy and scrambled eggs or fried eggs and hash browns and all, all the fixings like we haven't had in, it's been a year. Because I don't think we met in January, February, I was in Ukraine. So it's been since maybe December last year. So it's been a while. So men's prayer breakfast, November 21st, 7.30 a.m. Then second, the 2020 uh, pre-trib conference at uh, Dallas is the 7th to the 9th. And there's information on that. It will not be live streamed. I've been getting emails about that. It will not be live streamed primarily because the hotel has a really pathetically weak a Wi-Fi system in the conference rooms. And so when you're going to try to live stream, you've got to have a robust system, and they don't have it. Um, we will not have Bible class that Tuesday, December the 8th, so make a note of that. And then we will have our, uh, as is our habit, when we have the opportunity, we have a Christmas Eve service and it'll be a Christmas Eve communion service, and that will begin at 6.30 that evening because most things shut down. A lot of families want to spend some special time on Christmas Eve, and so that way we'll be finished by 7.30, and everyone can have the rest of the evening for uh, their, their family time. So those are the main announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord. We are to be in a position that is called fellowship, which simply means a partnership where we are walking together. It's a beautiful word, but few people emphasize that aspect of it. And so it, it really fits well with the concept of walking in the light, walking by the Spirit, uh, walking in truth. We are walking with the Lord, but when we sin, we're no longer walking with the Lord. We're walking with our sin nature, and we need to recover, and that is by confession of sin. The emphasis is always on cleansing all through the Scripture. The believer needs to be cleansed experientially of sin uh, so that he can maintain his walk with the Lord. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you are ready to study the Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. O 
Father, we're, we're, we're so th- thankful and grateful that we have the opportunity to come together to enter into your presence, to, that we have access by one spirit. We have access because of the work of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have forgiveness of sin because Christ paid for those sins. And because, as your word states, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we are so thankful for your grace because we all sin a lot of the time and we need that forgiveness and recovery. Now, Father, as we come together to study tonight, we want to continue to pray for our nation, to pray for our leadership, to pray for our president, to pray for all of the things that are going on with this election still. And, Father, we pray that you would expose any criminality, that you would expose any wrongdoing, that you would make it clear uh, when, where, and how uh, votes were tampered with. We need to make sure that no matter what, we have a system that people can trust and and it has integrity. And right now, a lot of the country doesn't believe that we have a trustworthy election system. So, Father, we pray that you might... Uh, give wisdom to judges and various courts that will decide various matters. And, Father, we pray that you would uh, enable us as a nation to continue to continue to teach the word to people who need to grow spiritually and to continue to send out missionaries who, who truly give the gospel and Bible teaching to people around the world. And, Father, we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 30, and we're in the last uh, we're in the last four verses of the psalm, and we're going to learn a little bit about how to craft our prayer requests, how to petition the Lord from a couple of different examples, an example here, an example from the New Testament, where we see that it's not just saying, Lord, gimme, gimme, gimme. Lord, please protect so-and-so. Lord, please do this and please do that. But building a biblical rationale based upon our understanding of who God is, understanding his essence, understanding his plan and his purpose, and above all, understanding scripture so that we can take what what God has said and uh, accurately work it together to build a biblical case for God to answer our petitions and our supplications. So we see an example here, as I said, and we'll go to another one. Now let's just remember what we've done here. At the beginning of Psalm 30, in the superscript, it says, A Psalm. This is the New King James Version. It says, A Song at the Dedication of the House. And it's badly translated after that. It should be a song at the dedication of the house, which is the house of God, the temple. And it says Le David, and the La at the beginning is the Hebrew preposition that is called the Lamed Octoris. It's the Lamed of authorship. And every time you have an author mentioned in all of the Psalms, it is expressed in this particular form. But the King James mistranslated it, the New King James did, and they made it as dedication at the house of David, and it's not. It's referring to the temple. And this was written by David ahead of time so that it would be sung when the temple was built. Now, that's an important thing to recognize because um, in the scriptures, when you think back to the events, for example, in Exodus, 
you have the Ten Commandments given in Exodus chapter 20. And then, uh, then God gives further instructions. And the way it's laid out, Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and he is being given the law. And then the way it's described, he comes down from Mount Sinai. He hears this sound of partying. If they're having a... Uh, a revelry and orgy and getting drunk and they've convinced Aaron because Moses has left them that he needs to build a an idol a golden calf for them to worship and they call the golden calf the God who redeemed them from from slavery in Egypt and it's just blasphemous and then so they've been given the guidance the 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 instructions from God how to build the tabernacle, which is where they can meet God. And then there's this gross sin in the nation. And then um, God is going to just threatens to just wipe them out. Moses intercedes for them. And then when Moses wrote it, he then put in the descriptions of the uh, tabernacle and how it was built. Now, what's important about that is when you look at the actual events. Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving all of the instruction, but the instructions are broken up by the fact that he inserts uh, the one event in the middle. And he's organizing it that way for a, for a reason. You have God giving the absolutes, and the first commandments are, Thou shalt have no God before me, and you will not worship any other gods. And so they're violating this. He's, God has begun to give the instructions on the, on the temple, or at least Moses writes that down first, and then there's the intercession, and then they build the tabernacle, rather. And the reason they're building the tabernacle is they have to come into the presence of God, and by meeting God in the tabernacle, what's provided? First and foremost, it's forgiveness. They come in, and there's a place to offer the sacrifice, where they can then meet God and there's forgiveness and cleansing from sin. And as Solomon wrote when he and, and stated in his dedication of the temple years later, he said, there is no house that can contain God. He says, no house can contain you whatsoever. Why did they need a tabernacle and a temple? Because it was a visible representation of how they would come into God's presence then they would have uh, and they would experience forgiveness and cleansing from their sins. So David is writing this as a song of dedication. It is a praise psalm because God delivered him from the ultimate consequences of his own sin, which was numbering the people. And if you recall, as we studied through Second uh, Samuel chapter 24, that God that God stops the plague as David sacrifices and where he would have confessed his sin uh, ritually. And that's when God stops ahead of time. He doesn't carry through and uh, take the life of as many as he would have. And so he stops ahead of time once the sin is confessed and once there's that restoration uh, of fellowship. And so David writes this to give praise to God for the fact that God has forgiven him God stayed his hand and in, the, um, in the, the plague, and so David is writing this psalm of praise. But a psalm of praise is not written for the purpose of just praising God. God is not some egomaniac up in the heavens who just needs everybody to praise him. The purpose for these, uh, the praise psalms 
are for instruction. And so there is instruction in this particular hymn, and I'll just review us on it one last time since we'll finish it tonight. He begins with his praise, and he states, I will, I will lift you up in praise, O Yahweh, for you have drawn me up. And the imagery there and the word there is like a bucket being drawn out of a well. So you have this imagery of I will lift you up, and you have lifted me up from this pit, from this well, which is a, uh, a metaphor for Sheol and for the pit. For the pit, and he says, "And you have not let my foes rejoice over me, and they can't make fun of me, and they're not going to say I told you so, and they're not going to blame me for what happened. You have uh, forgiven me, and you have stopped the plague." And then he gives his uh, testimony of what God did. He said, "Oh Yahweh, my God, I cried out to you, and you healed me." And sometimes this word has an overtone of salvation, but I think most of the time, not all the time, that you have salvation words in the psalm. It's not talking about justification, salvation. It's God delivering his people or God delivering David from some personal crisis, some threat to his life, something like that. And here it, it, this fits with the plague scenario you healed me. You prevented me from getting the plague and dying. And then he uses the imagery, you brought my soul up from the grave, and that is Sheol. And it, it doesn't mean that David went there. It, it's, um, it's a little hyperbolic. It basically means that God, as we went through this, that God kept him from going into the grave. God kept him from dying. And that's what he says in the next line, you have kept me alive. So there's, there's a sort of a stair step of ideas. You brought my soul up from Sheol. You have kept me alive. Why? That I should not go down to the pit. Here's one word for pit. We'll have another word uh, for pit when we get down into uh, probably, I think it's in verse, yes, it is, verse 9. There's a different word, but they're synonyms, and they refer to the grave, and that's that's the sense there. You kept me, so I did not go to the grave. I did not die. And then he has the 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 command, the the enjoinder to the congregation that God has done this. So you sing praise to the Lord. And then we took a detour for three or four uh, topical lessons on what does it mean to sing. And how do you sing? What's necessary for singing praise? You have to have words. You have to have music. They should be the best of words, the best of lyrics, and the best of music. So it's not just somebody who's strumming along on a lyre and coming up with a little tune with, uh, you know, three chords, uh, and that's all they ever use. It was something that was much more majestic than that to honor and glorify a majestic God who has created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. And so they're, uh, they're invited to praise God, to praise the Lord, you saints, that is, you faithful ones of him, as I translated that because of the Hebrew there, kasid, and then and give thanks, that is, thankful praise at the remembrance of his holy name. And that phrase indicates all of his essence. And this is an idiom that's used, and you'll notice when you get down 
um, a, a parallel to this uh, is the idea of a person's glory or God's glory. This was a, 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 a another way of speaking about God's essence was his glory. So, for example, Romans 3.23 says that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what that really means, and this was a rabbinical idiom, it refers to the essence of someone. And you see it in verse, what is that? In verse, uh, the last verse, verse 12, to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. What David is saying, to the end that I, all that I am, my essence, all that I am, uh, may sing praise to you and not be silent. So you have this these idioms in the Hebrew that are important for us to, to understand. Whenever we remember who God is, and that's represented by his name, uh, it's all the, of his essence, then we are to give thanks for whatever is going on. Whether we think it's good or bad, uh, we are to be thankful for it, for And then we get to the main lesson from verse 5 where we started last time. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor for a life. And here we have this word favor, which brings in one of the most important themes of this whole psalm, and that is God's grace. Because that is what what, uh, David is going to appeal to in God's character when he crafts his petition to God, his supplication. Uh, he says here, for uh, the way it's translated in the New King James, it smooths it out. It makes it more elegant in one sense than the Hebrew. The Hebrew had, leaves out the verbs. It shows a lot of excitement. Uh, David is, it shows that David is, this is really the, the climax of what David is saying. This is the main lesson for people to remember is that God's discipline, God's wrath, God's anger is short-lived. A moment, if you study the word, can be anywhere from the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity to a few days to whatever. So, But generally, it is short-lived. But joy comes in the morning. And we, excuse me, his favors for life. So his discipline is just momentarily, momentary, and then his grace is what dominates. His grace is for life. And then he says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And as I explained, I heard Jim use, throwing the word around in conversation before class. This is a metonymy. And a metonymy is where you substitute one word for another, but the two are associated. And for example, if there is an announcement uh, made by the military, would say you might read a report that says, today the Pentagon announced... Well, the Pentagon is an inanimate building. It doesn't announce anything. But those who office there are the heads of the the branches of the military, and so they are making the Joint Chiefs of Staff are making some sort of announcement. And you can also hear somebody will say, well, the White House said today. Well, the White House is inanimate. It doesn't ever speak, but it is saying that something comes from the executive branch, from, from the president. So those are metonymies. We use them all the time in language, and we're just not conscious or we haven't been taught about that particular figure of speech. So weeping is, the, is associated with, uh, with divine discipline because we are under the uh, disciplinary hand of God, and so we're miserable and we weep. 
So it is weeping is put for that uh, anger, that wrath of God, the execution of his judgment on us, and joy, which is the opposite. When we receive God's favor, we're joyful. And so it is the result of, of God's favor for us. And I have translated this, a moment in his anger, a lifetime in his favor, for a night weeping makes its, for a night weeping makes its home, but in the morning a shout of joy. And that's closer to the, you know, word for word translation that we have here. And then we, he recounts his confession of sin. And that's in verse 6. And he uses a word that is translated as prosperity, and that's the main idea. He was at ease. That's the literal meaning. But what it means is my enemies were gone. I've conquered everybody. The the tribes are united. And he was basically thinking, uh, look what I did. I don't have any problems. And it's what God did, not what he did. And he forgets, and so he says, he says, I shall never be moved. Literally, it's the idea that, that I'm never going to be insecure. And he, he's thinking he did it all. And that's easy for us to do in the prosperity test is to just think that we did it all. And I translated that as, uh, and I, I said, because there's a, an emphasis there in the Hebrew, I said in my arrogant self-sufficiency, I shall never be a be insecure. And then in verse 7, he says, Lord, by your favor. So again, he's emphasizing God's grace. By your favor, by your grace, you have made my mountain stand strong. And mountain there represents a kingdom. You've made my kingdom stand strong. And it wasn't David. He's saying this, God did this. And he said, then, the idea is then, you you hid your face, and I was troubled. And hide, God hiding his face is the withdrawal of his favor. He's withholding his uh, blessing, and that has the idea of being uh, rejected. God is bringing judgment or divine discipline upon them. And so he says, you hid your face, and this is just, it, it's like it went from daylight to dark, and I was troubled. And so he is deeply concerned, but he confessed his sin, and God forgave him. And then we come to the verse where we're starting tonight. I cried out to you, O Yahweh, and to Yahweh I made supplication. And when we look at the first, the verb here, it's I cried, which is just a general word that is, uh, it doesn't have an, an intensity to it, like the uh, word back at... Um, uh, uh, at the beginning in verse 2 where he says, Lord, I cried out to you. That had more of the idea of just sort of uh, uh, screaming in anguish. It's, it's, it's a loud cry. But this is just a general word to call out to God. It's used many, many times with that sense. I called out to you. So it's referring to his prayer. I called out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. And this is what we have here is a, basically a chiasm. We've studied it many times where if you were to draw your lines, it would look like the left-hand side of an X, which is the Greek letter key. And it's A, B, B, A. So I cried out. It's parallel to the very last uh, clause. I cried out, I made supplication. So that tells us that the crying out was the expression of his supplication. 
and he says, I cried out and to the Lord, and then he repeats that, and to the Lord I made supplication. And the idea of the word supplication is to make a request. The Hebrew word is the word hanan. Again, this is a cognate to the basic Greek word, I mean, excuse me, Hebrew word for grace. In the cow stem, as I point out over here in this panel, in the cow stem, it means to be gracious or to show favor. So this is a third or fourth time that David brings grace into the picture. But this is in the uh, hithpael, which is a causative stem. You don't need to get confused by the grammar. But in these different stems, it'll have slightly different meanings or nuances. And it has the idea of imploring favor uh, to make supplication. And so that is what uh, this is expressing. So his his prayer that he's calling upon God, he's calling upon God in prayer uh, to make uh, make supplication. And if you remember, when I have talked about prayer, I have used the uh, acronym of CATS to think about four parts to prayer. The C is for confession. The A is for adoration. The, the uh, T is for thanksgiving. And the S is for supplication. And in supplication, we can intercede for others or make petition for ourselves. So you have these four categories uh, for prayer, confession, adoration, thanksgiving, and supplication. So this is when we are bringing a, uh, a request before God. Now, in the, uh, in the various English dictionaries, the idea of supplicate is to make a humble request uh, to someone or to plead for something. And this is the definition in the Collins Dictionary. In the, uh, in the uh, concise Oxford Dictionary, it has the idea to ask or beg for something earnestly or humbly. And so that's the basic idea, is to make a request of someone to provide something, and it's done out of humility. So David has humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. He has confessed his sin. And so he calls out to the Lord to uh, intercede, intervene in the events that are going on. And then he presents a logical rationale, a reason for why God should stop the plague and should intervene and answer his prayer in a positive way. And so verse 9 expresses this, and he says, What profit is there in my blood? When I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? So basically he's asking four rhetorical questions which bring out his, uh, his basic rationale. And first of all, let's just understand what is going on here. He uses the phrase, uh, the word prophet, and this is from a Hebrew word, batzah, which means profit, gain, benefit, or value. So you could translate it as what benefit is there in my blood, what value is there in my blood. And the use of the word blood there is really an idiom for death. 
it is a part of the idea of the of the shedding of blood and so we have passages that talk about this this is important to understand this is talking about using a figurative sense of the word uh, because of what it signifies Genesis 9:4 states but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is the blood so you have this explanatory phrase there that the life is the blood and that's brought out in passages like Leviticus 17:11 as well as 17:14 for the life of the flesh is in the blood so when the blood runs out and somebody bleeds out then they die and so the result of the shedding of blood is is death and so the shedding of blood was an idiom for death particularly a violent uh, violent form of death so what he is asking is basically what value is there uh, in my death what what profit is it if uh, i die uh, what gain is that to anyone if I die? And then it is then uh, expanded in the next uh, next clause, or next, yes, next clause, when he says, when I go down to the pit, what value is that when my blood is shed and I go to the grave? That's what he's asking. And then he says, will the dust praise you? And, of course, when he says, um, and well, here I put the Hebrew word for pit. That's a different word, just a meaning for grave. And in Genesis 3.19, we have this word uh, afar for dust. What's interesting is it can mean dust. It can mean dirt. It can mean the earth. It can, you know, some have called it the chemicals of the soil. And so what David is saying here, when I die and I go to the grave, because God had stated in Genesis 3.19 that a result of sin is that because he told Adam, because you were taken out of the ground, out of, you were, out of the ground you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. And so that's what David is alluding to here. Out of the ground you were taken, you're going to go back, you're just going to become... Uh, dirt. You're just going to become dust. You're going to decompose and go back to the chemicals of the soil. And so he says, will the dust, will, will the decomposed body, the dust, the bones, the dead person in the, in the grave praise you? And of course not. What he means by praise is not that God just wants somebody to talk about how great God is all the time for its own sake but that when you would come into the temple, you come into the tabernacle and you bring a sacrifice and you are going to praise God for what he's done. It's a thank offering and you're thanking God for what he has done. You're going to tell people what God has done so that they can learn the lesson that you learned and hopefully they will learn from it. And here you have the king and what we'll see when we get down into... Uh, verse 11 where he talks about God has put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness is that the king would not go down in all of his pomp and circumstance in his uh, robes of royalty uh, indicating his position he would dress in a way where he's simply clothed in sackcloth which was a a uh, coarse cloth that was used for making the uh, sacks that would carry uh, carry uh, grain 
or produce. Uh, you might liken it to a burlap sack if you uh, can remember that or if you've ever been on the farm. And, and I remember using burlap sacks for all kinds of things when I was a kid. And you would not want to wear a shirt made out of a burlap sack, so it would be uncomfortable. But it was the, the, the lowest of cloth, and it is an expression of humility. Instead of coming in all of his finery, he's coming dressed as a beggar, as a, as a peasant of no value, no significance, and he is, it is to indicate his humility uh, before God. And so this is what goes on. He says, he says, if you forgive me, then when I bring sacrifices to the temple and I tell people what you have done, then they will learn from that and we will rejoice together over your grace and your goodness and how you forgive us. And they will learn from that. And that is the purpose for praise is to, uh, to teach others. So he says... Uh, the dust can't, will the dust praise you? No, of course not. Will it declare your truth? And that is the purpose for praise, is to declare who God is, what he has done, why he has done it, and how you too, if you have uh, violated God's law, if you have sinned, you too can have forgiveness. And so the people there would look on David and they would say, uh, if the God will forgive the king for what he has done and his discipline has been so severe, then God can certainly forgive me for what I have done. And it was a great lesson in, in, in grace and forgiveness. So David crafts this, this statement here to appeal to God's grace and to give him life so that he can teach others about who God is and about God's grace. And so basically we would structure it this way. First of all, God, we recognize that God desires his creatures to praise and glorify him, not because he wants all the attention, but because this is why he has created his creatures to serve him and to have maximum happiness because of their uh, intimacy with God. And when they sin, then that is going to be broken. They're going to go from light to darkness, and they will experience uh, the justice of God. And so there needs to be a restoration and forgiveness in grace. And so David appeals to him in the second point, and saying, David can no longer praise or glorify God if he is dead. If you desire my praise and the thanksgiving of your people to teach others of your glory, your essence, and your grace, then if I'm dead, that isn't going to happen. And so if you keep me alive so that I can uh, fulfill the, the goal of the sacrifices and to teach others about who you are, to teach your truth, to declare the truth of your word, then... Um, then I, I am pleading that you will uh, forgive me and allow me to live. And this is his rationale. So he sets forth a, a biblical case based upon the uh, character of God and appeals to that. And then in verse 10, he says, Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me, 
And again, this is another word uh, for grace here. It's not when you often in the New King James, when you see the word mercy, you think of chesed and God's faithful, loyal love. But this is not uh, that word. It is the word, uh, the cognate of which we've already seen earlier with Hanan. It's it's, uh, the word for grace. But he pleads with God. He says, listen to me, not just hear. He's not talking about God having his, uh, as it were, having his ears uh, vibrating and hearing the auditory sounds. He, the, when, when you see these words in the Bible, you see hear or listen. It is not just talking about uh, listen to what I'm saying, make sure that you hear it, It is hear it and respond, hear it and do something, hear it and uh, do what I'm asking you to do. Uh, The other day in, um, and typically in the commune service, I will say when you have the word remember and God is addressed by, by someone in a psalm and says remember something, and God tells the people to remember the Exodus. It's not just to sit down and have just mental recall of something that happened in the past, which often we will do, but it is designed to engage a person in action. Remember what Christ did? Now, that should have an impact on your thinking and what you do. So by remembering it, it should have an impact on your life, and there should be a reaction. So the same thing is true for this word here. It's not just having your ears and your auditory nerves stimulated, but listen and go do something. And so he says he is basically appealing to God to hear me and respond positively to my supplication. And have, uh, that's the word shama, and then he says, and have mercy, which is the word hanan, to show favor, to be gracious. So David, again, focuses on the grace of God. So this is a major theme in this psalm to uh, appeal to God's grace. And he says, have mercy on me, Lord, my helper. And this is the word azar, which here it is a, uh, it's, it's a verb but it is also related to the noun. The noun form has slightly different vowels. It's ezer. And ezer comes across in the name that was given to a memorial in, I think it's in 1 Samuel 4, where God has given the Israelites victory over the Philistines, and they set up a rock memorial, and they call it Ebenezer. The Evan is the word for stone. This is God was the rock of our help. And so this title of God, uh, you find again and again in the Psalms that he is called our helper. And this shows that being a helper is a very high position. And when you read the account of the creation of Eve in Genesis chapter 2, God prefaces that by saying it's not good for the man to be alone. He needs a helper, an ezer. And this is important because it shows that an ezer is not a lowly position. It's not some sort of secondary human being because the only other person of significance that is called an ezer is God. And so this is an elevated position. God pictures himself at times as a servant. Uh, 
even though he is the creator God of the universe. And so the wife is to help the man achieve where together as a couple they are pursuing God's will and the wife helps the man accomplish what God has for him to accomplish. So he uh, appeals to God in his supplication. He appeals to God's mercy. He is the one, only one who can help David in terms of forgiving him and restoring him. And then he gives the results in verse 11. He says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. His mourning, he's been grieving because uh, as the plague has gone through uh, Israel, has gone through Judea, then people are dying left and right. And so he is mourning the deaths of these who uh, caught the plague and they have died. And now there is forgiveness and the plague has stopped. And so his mourning is turned into dancing. Dancing is the result of joy. So again, these are uh, metonymies. Uh, You have put off my sackcloth. The sackcloth is associated with humility and uh, coming to express your uh, submission to God and your seeking forgiveness at the altar. And so David says, now you have forgiven me putting off the sackcloth. He's wearing the sackcloth as a sign of humility for God to forgive him. And God has taken this sackcloth. He's forgiven him and he has replaced it with gladness. He has clothed him with gladness, which is the result of being forgiven. And so we have the idea here is that um, when we confess our sins, then God forgives us. He cleanses us. There's joy because our sins are no longer a barrier to fellowship with God. But more than that, often God in his grace removes the consequences. Sometimes he doesn't, as David well knew, because the consequences of his adultery uh, with Bathsheba and his conspiring to have her husband Uriah killed, uh, that he did not, God did not remove the consequences from that. And there was a fourfold discipline. But in this sense, he ends the plague early, and David experiences this this forgiveness. And so then uh, David ends with the statement, To the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. He's expressing the purpose for this petition is so that all that David is, that's represented by by his glory, his Significance. We've studied the word for glory before. Its root meaning is something that is heavy. It comes to be applied to something that is important, something that is of a weighty matter, something that is significant. And so it is also applied to a person in terms of that which makes him important. That's what makes him significant. And so that then is applied to all that he is. So what David is saying to the end that all that I am may sing praise to you and not be silent, that I can teach others about your grace, that I can tell others about your forgiveness and how you bring joy to our despondent souls and the darkness in our lives by forgiveness. Uh, That is the purpose here. And he says, O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. 
So this is a focal point. The emphasis on his gratitude to God is so important. We live in such an ungrateful culture that people are so self-absorbed that they don't stop and take time to thank people for what they have done. And that just shows the, their, their underlying arrogance. And they just think that they're entitled to everything. Sometimes we're guilty of thinking that certain classes of people have an entitlement mentality. But the sin nature gives all of us an entitlement mentality. And when that is not restrained by the word of God and the teaching of God's word on humility, then we have serious problems. We think that we're owed every everything that is good that comes to us, and we can't really humble ourselves uh, to God. And so that is the thrust of this hymn. It is a, a great hymn that would have been sung <clears throat> at the dedication of the temple, and therefore it is a reminder that the purpose for coming to the, the, to the temple is to realize that forgiveness of God in one's life and also to praise God to teach others through the, the hymns that were sung, many of which were written by, by David. And I believe that David wrote many of these psalms and that they were uh, beginning to be collected at, uh, during his life so that they could be, that would form the hymn book. We know from the accounts in uh, First Chronicles that David organized the orchestras and he organized the very various musical guilds, the singers, the orchestras, uh, the all of the musicians and all of their training. And there would have been uh, several thousand that were involved in those tremendous uh, choirs that sang on the feast days. And that what they sang were these hymns that David wrote, and that formed the the center. Of their uh, of their worship, and so this is what draw, brings people lifts up their thinking to God and focus this focuses them on the truth of God's word. So as we wrap this up, I want to go to a New Testament passage where we're going to look at a way in which we an example in the New Testament of how uh, the apostles put together a prayer based upon the same kind of thing that we see with David, presenting a rationale to God based on Scripture as to why God should intercede in their uh, dire consequences, their dire situation. So turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. This is very close to the time of the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost, probably within a week or so. And we have studied this before, and on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descends and you have the initial uh, baptism and indwelling of the apostles, and then those after afterwards, uh, then uh, Peter explains what is happening, and he connects it to the death, burial, and the resurrection of the Savior, putting specific emphasis uh, on the resurrection of Christ. And then at the end of that, uh, we are told that that, um, uh, several thousand 
uh, responded and are saved. 3,000 souls were added to them that day, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the which consisted fellowship consisted in the breaking of bread, communion, fellowship with God, and prayer, also fellowship with God. I think that's the fellowship there. It's not fellowship with other human beings. It's that partnership with God that is exemplified in the communion, the Lord's table, and it's exemplified in uh, prayer. Then the next day or so, we come into Acts chapter 3, and Peter and John go to the temple at the hour of prayer at the beginning of of, uh, Acts 3, the the ninth hour. So this is about 9 o'clock in the morning. And there's a lame man there, and it makes it a specific case. He is lame, and the text says from his mother's womb, which is really an idiom, or from birth. This is a good example of why it means that you wouldn't know he was lame until he was born. So he is lame from, from birth, which is how that word is translated. In a, that phrase is translated by uh, other translations in v- various different places. At a certain, a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried when they uh, would take him daily to the temple to the gate, which is called Beautiful, and there he would beg day in and day out. And so Peter and John are coming up, and they they look at him, and Peter says, "Well, I don't have any money to give you, but I'm going to give you what I can." And I'm going, and he heals him, and he uh, is able to. Uh, he, uh, Peter then tells him to stand up and walk which must have shocked this guy. How can he do that? But he must, uh, I'm just guessing here, he must have felt something energizing his legs. Uh, So he stands up, and immediately he's able to walk. He doesn't have to learn how to walk. He's not like a baby who's just kind of uh, bouncing along and wobbling on his feet and everything. He gets up and he walks, and he's he's leaping for joy. It is a, a, a... uh, a miracle. Verse 8 says, So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people, note, several times here it says all the people saw him. It's witness. Everybody knew who he was. They knew he had been uh, lame from, from birth. And then the word gets to the Sanhedrin. And uh, after uh, Peter has has preached, then the Sanhedrin comes and they uh, they arrest them. There's uh, five thousand males. The text is clear. It's not people. It's not men in the sense of human beings. It's males. The the Greek word is specific there. Uh, five thousand males. So there are probably a lot more when you would include their wives or families as a result of this particular incident. And so the day after they are uh, arrested and taken before the Sanhedrin, and there Peter uh, confronts them and uh, connects what and tells them who Jesus was again. It's because uh, of this man whom you crucified, that uh, and he has been raised from the dead, and he goes on to uh, to speak to them. And then we get down to, um, in verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, which means they weren't trained and educated as Pharisees. 
They, they didn't go to the right seminary. So therefore, they were uneducated and unlearned. And they um, realized that who they were, and they, um, they were with Jesus. And in verse 18, they command him not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of, of Jesus. But um, their response is to go to pray. So they are released at that particular time. They're threatened, but they're not beaten yet. They let them go, and because the people and all of the witness, witnesses to the healing are there, and they are afraid of the people. And so in verse 23 we read, And being let go, they went to their own companions, this is Peter and John, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So they tell them we're being intimidated, they threatened us, they threatened to kill us, and uh, we need to pray about this. So they sat down, and when you look at this prayer, I don't think that this was a spontaneous prayer. I think they thought about this, and they crafted this prayer and this particular rationale. And we read in verse 24 in the second half that I have on italics in the in the on the screen lord you are god who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them now this is stated in exodus 20 verse 11 in relation to the law of for the sabbath because god made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them in six days and rested on the seventh but it's stated again in just this same word order in Psalm 146, 6. And so you can turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 146, because this is a good hymn that there's some verses here you might want to, um, you might want to underline, highlight, memorize. It's not a long psalm. It's 10 verses. And it starts off, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That is what hallelujah means. Hallel is the word for praise. The hallelujah is the second person plural. So it's y'all praise Yahweh. Yah, that's abbreviated form of God's name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in princes. Isn't this a good verse for this time of our lives? Do not trust in princes. In mortal man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. There's our quote. Who keeps faith forever, which means he is always faithful. Who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. So they go to this psalm, and they quote from the middle of this psalm in terms of 
of the uh, verse here in Acts 4.24. Why are they quoting that? Well, let's look at the context here in verse 3. First of all, verse 3 tells us don't trust in princes. Now, we've studied that there are four different ways in which the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. And in Matthew chapter 2, yet we've gone through these four different examples of how you have fulfillment language. This fulfilled something. Okay, and the first one is has to do with the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, going to Micah 5.2, that predicted it is a literal prophecy of a literal event that is literally fulfilled. It says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. That's how we normally think uh, it is fulfilled means. But that's not how it's used in the other examples. Now, I'm not going to go through all of those, but the third way in which a, you have this it is fulfilled statement made is really not, it, it's a historical event or a historical situation, and it's just applied to the current situation. It's not saying it's a prophetic fulfillment in the first way. It is just an application of it. Because the the statement that we have... Um, that that we have in the second verse the second psalm that's going to be quoted is psalm 2 isn't fulfilled until you get to the end of the tribulation when Jesus returns but it's a similar situation so it could be understood this is like that and so what the the lead into these quotes is this statement do not trust in princes so that's being applied to the sanhedrin is being applied to the rulers of the Jews. Don't trust in them. Don't trust in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. And then in verse 5, we read, How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. This is the one that Peter and John have appealed to. Uh, he is our helper, as we studied earlier in Psalm 30, whose hope is in the Lord his God, and he is the one who created everything. So if he created everything, then when it's applied to giving food to the hungry and uh, executing justice for the oppressed, then certainly this God who created everything out of nothing can heal people and he can provide everything for them. And we get to verse 7 and it states, he executes justice for the oppressed. And so that's exemplified in the lame man he gives food to the hungry and he sets the prisoners free. And so they are applying this aspect to what they are saying there in Acts chapter chapter 4, that God is the one who created all things. And then they connect that thought in Psalm 146 to a verse in Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2, as we've studied many times, is a messianic psalm. And it begins, you know, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Mashiach. So it's a clearly messianic, messianic psalm. But it's not actually fulfilled until the end of the tribulation, as I, as I just said. 
So, but this is applied to this situation because you have these rulers and you're not to trust in the rulers. That's the point of quoting from Psalm 146. But here uh, we need to recognize that the human rulers are often antagonistic to God and his Messiah. They are against God's plan. They're in it for the power, for the money, for whatever. And so uh, what, what Peter is doing here is he is uh, pulling these things together in order to create a, um, a proper request to God. They are not operating on emotion. This is not an emotional prayer. This is a very well thought out prayer that is relying upon their understanding of Scripture from the Old Testament. And so they're weaving these two passages together in order to, to, uh, to appeal to God, to, uh, to petition him. What's interesting is it is a highly emotional scenario. When you've been arrested by the Sanhedrin and they interrogate you and then they threaten you, and then you get away from them. There's a, a God has released them. They are they, they are relieved that they're not going to be thrown into jail or crucified like Jesus was. And so they are relieved. So there is a tremendous amount of emotion going on, but they're not emotional. They are relying on the text and the promises of Scripture. And so they are able to pray together, all of the disciples gathered there. They are able to, uh, to put these verses together uh, in light of the problem that they face and to present a case to God that it's saying basically it's critical for you to intervene in this situation and in this uh, scenario. And it's... It, the way they've done this indicates this isn't a hasty prayer. They're, they're pulling up the scripture and the doctrine that's in their soul. And then in verse 27, they present their case based on these verses. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the rulers, the kings of the Gentiles, uh, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before uh, to be done. In other words, they've gathered together just like the kings in Psalm 2 are going to gather together in the future against against your Messiah. And so they appeal to him uh, that they will deliver them. And they say, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. No, they don't say, don't get us out of this mess. Let us get out of town alive. They say, give us boldness so that we won't be cowed by their threats and by their attempts to intimidate us. And then they go on to say in verse 30, by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Authenticate who we are in our message by the miracles that we will perform. And so the prayer is answered, and that's what's summarized in verse 31. And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. This is the early part of the church, so God is using these signs and these miracles to give them confidence. And so 
everything is shaken, and this gives them confidence that God is answering the prayer, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's a, a different word, not not uh, plerao, which is what's used in Ephesians 5.18, but the word pimplemi, which is almost always followed by some sort of speaking. And so they are filled in this sense with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, I'm going to skip over what happens after that and the situation with Ananias and Sapphira. And then we go through all of that and we come into chapter 5, uh, verse 17. And just to highlight what's going on, they get brought before the uh, Sanhedrin again and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with them. And they have laid, verse 18, they laid hands on the apostles and they put them in a common prison. In our parlance, they would say they put them in the general pop of the worst prison. So their lives were in danger from all of these career criminals who were extremely violent in this, in this prisoner, in this prison. And at night, verse 19, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and then gave them instructions. See, this is the answer to the prayer where they're praying that God will give them boldness. And the angel says, okay, go into the temple now. Don't get out of town. Go right into the belly of the beast and go right into the temple and do exactly what they told you not to do and proclaim the truth of the gospel. And so that is what happens. They go and they stand in the temple and, as the angel said, and speak to the people all the words of this life. And so then they're, of course, arrested again and they're brought before uh, the Sanhedrin. And there's a couple of very famous statements that are made here. And and, um, I think I have one of them here in Acts 5.29 as they confront uh, Peter and the apostles and tell them not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. When man tells you to do something that is contrary to what God has instructed, that's when we have the right to disobey civil authority. And uh, so they go on and they uh, proclaim the gospel to the Sanhedrin again in verses 30 uh, to 30, 31. And then after that, there is this debate that takes place among them, and one of the most learned rabbis, Gamaliel, stands up and makes this incredible statement to them, and he's trying to calm them down. He says, listen, just let it go. If this is a work of man, then it's just going to die out, and don't, don't worry about it. Don't make a big deal about it. But if this is God's work, there's nothing that you can do to stop it. And that's Acts 5, 38 to 39. If it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And, of course, we know how that turned out for them. And then uh, when they decide they're going to go ahead and punish Peter and John anyway, they called for them, they beat them, they uh, uh, tortured them and then told them, Uh, again, commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So what did they do? Go home feeling, hanging their head and saying, boy, we we could sure get out of this trial. This is really tough. Wonder if Jesus is going to come back soon. That's how a lot of modern Christians would respond. And they leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Remember those stories I read from Voice of the Martyrs on Sunday morning 
about the young bride that was arrested as she was on the way to the altar to get married, and she just held out her hands and said, so this is my king's wedding present to me to wear such 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 beautiful bracelets, and this is a symbol of my uh, the honor I have to suffer for my Lord. And they took her and tortured her for five years before they released her, but her groom waited for her, and they were married, and she just rejoiced that God gave her the ability to withstand all that she went through. And we don't have any idea what it means to truly suffer for Jesus. And so the result of this was that daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. But that was how they crafted their prayer. They went back and they looked at verses in the Old Testament that they knew well. They put them together to build a case to God so that they're not just praying, God, please release us, uh, give us the power to handle the situation, but they presented a biblical case They presented a logically developed, rational case for why God should intervene the way they they wanted him to, and God answered their prayer. So let's uh, bow our heads, and we'll close out uh, tonight. Next week, we're going to come back. We'll be in Psalm uh, 82. We're going to connect this in a little sub-series related to all three nights. I'm just going to probably introduce it Sunday morning where we have uh, Paul talking in Ephesians uh, 3.10 that we are witnesses before the principalities and powers. What are they? Who are they? And why are we witnesses before them? And we have to understand that they're angels and why we are a visible testimony to them. And that is going to take us into passages like Psalm 82 and further passages in Job and in Isaiah, some of the passages we've studied before, Psalm 82, we have not studied before, some other passages, and we're going to uh, build a little bit more robust understanding of the angelic conflict and how it fits into uh, human history and our lives. So that's going to probably start with with Sunday and probably take six or eight lessons uh, to get through all of that before we'll come back to other psalms to study. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to have access to you as we've studied. In Ephesians 2, we have access. Now, Jew and Gentile have equal access by one spirit, that we have access because our high priest has opened the way to you and that we can come boldly before your throne of grace. And Father, we again pray for our nation. Uh, We are like all other nations. We have our ups and downs, and we certainly deserve a tremendous amount of judgment. And there is so much evil that takes place in some quarters. There's so much antagonism to you and to uh, Jesus Christ and to Christians that, that... probably judgment is long overdue. And we certainly don't want to have the kind of reaction that Habakkuk had, praying that you would uh, judge Israel. And then when you said what you were going to do, he cried out, well, Lord, how can you do that? 
we recognize that no matter what the judgment is, no matter what we may need to go through in our lives as you bring uh, some discipline on this nation, if that is indeed what is uh, where we're headed. Uh, Father, we know that if uh, we go through that, that we will praise you. As Habakkuk says at the end of the book, that even if there's no grapes on the vine, even if there's no grain in the fields, e- even when there is an economic depression and collapse, even if we lose our livelihoods, even if we lose our 401k plans and our retirement accounts, and even if we lose our houses, we will praise you because you are accomplishing your plan and your will, and that's what we're oriented to, is that which brings glory to you. And no matter what may happen to us in terms of personal discomfort or loss, uh, we will praise you anyway. And Father, we pray, though, that in your grace that you might sustain this nation, that you might bring a victory out of this election where uh, there seems to be so much evidence of corruption, so much evidence of uh, maybe foul play or just problems with computer software, we don't know which, uh, so much where uh, there were in violation of federal law, uh, there was refusal to allow members of both parties to be uh, present to witness the way in which voting was conducted. All of this was highly irregular and illegal. Father, we pray that there might be an exposure of the sin and the evil on the parts of many people, their collusion to overturn the electoral process. And Father, we pray that that there would be a return to integrity in this nation. For there are many believers in this nation who desire to serve you and desire to glorify you and to proclaim the truth of your word and your greatness. And so, Father, we pray that you would allow them the voice and the opportunity to make the gospel clear in the midst of the evil that goes on around us. And, Father, we pray that our mental attitude would not be shaped by the circumstances, the negative circumstances surrounding us, but we must recognize that your plan marches on and it may or may not include what we think are pleasant circumstances for us but we will glorify you no matter what. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.